let us know this morning, so hopefully she uh, is doing well. Just a couple things before we uh, turn to God's Word. Um, two weeks from today, we're going to need to have a brief business meeting, and let me explain to you, um, since we voted in December for money for capital improvements, we've since realized that uh, we need to improve our sound system here. Uh, the good news is I think it can fit well within um, what we need, but we want to be sure about that. We want to, it is a new project that's uh, coming up, so we want to be sure that we have, go through the right procedure in that. So two weeks from today, we'll come to vote. Uh, next week, our deacons will have a, a brief meeting to summarize what we're looking at. I'm still collecting some information. I've talked to some of the music ministry people that are involved. A uh, couple of questions we want to have so that we can present to the deacons next week and then they to the church as a whole two weeks from today. So I did want to let you know about that. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11? We're in a series of messages here in 1 Corinthians 11. As you're turning there, uh, a few years ago, uh, there was an indoor athletic event in uh, a close-by area, and uh, it was a midweek. It was a night, and uh, two teams were competing against one another, and things really began to get chippy. You understand what I'm saying. It began with people talking back and forth, and then someone came into one part of the playing area, and they were pushed, and someone else took offense to it, and before long, the jawing turned into pushing, which turned into an all-out fight on the court among those who were involved. Uh, I was not there, but I did receive a firsthand account. It would have been okay, and they could have restored order if it had just been the participants, but there were about 100 to 150 people in the crowd, and the individual who was there said all of a sudden, the stands began to empty, and Women, men, everywhere was pushing, pulling, and all of this. Now, in years, this event had been carried out. There had been nothing like it, and those who were sponsoring the event didn't know what to do. And someone came up, though, with a brilliant, and I put quotes around brilliant idea because it was the exact opposite. He said, let's turn all the lights off. <laughs> I think his rationale was they couldn't hit what they couldn't see, but that was a wrong, wrong, wrong decision. The person who was there said people were screaming. It was leading to more chaos. And the only way they were able to restore order was somebody had enough sense to turn the lights back on so that they could see what was going on and order was restored. You know, in many ways today, we're living in a chaotic, confusing divisive era. Unsettlement seems to be the norm. And in such days, we don't need more darkness. We need more light. And God's word is light. In fact, the psalmist said about this in God's word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, sometimes light can seem abrupt, can it? If you're sitting with your eyes open in a darkened room and somebody comes in and immediately shines a bright light, 
you're, you're almost shocked. It seems like the light has invaded. Yet there are many benefits to the light, and once our eyes adapt to the light, we would all agree it's to our advantage. And so sometimes light seems not normal. Sometimes light can seem to evade what we may be comfortable with. But we need to be reminded that light is not defined by darkness. In fact, light dispels darkness. And such is the word of God in any culture. We're continuing this morning our study in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be going through what has been about the midpoint of 1 Corinthians 10 through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And our, our focus in this series of messages is life in community. Last week we looked at the very same subject. How are we to live in community in such a way that others are built up and God is glorified? Really that ought to be our desire. When we're in the workplace, when we're in our community, when we're in the church, our desire should be that we would facilitate the growth of others and that we would glorify God. With that in mind, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having her head shaved for if a woman does not cover her head she should have her hair cut off but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved let her head be covered a man should not cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God so too woman is the glory of man for man did not come from woman but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to this passage, we pray today that you would add to our understanding, Father, this is the word of God, and I pray that as I preach it, that, Lord, I would do in accordance uh, that of a workman faithfully discharging what you would have me to teach. Uh, Father, these words that we just read, as we read them in the culture in which we live, in many ways may seem foreign, but, Father, there's a purpose in every part of your word. Open our eyes to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'll be honest, one of the great temptations of preaching, and most preachers would confess to this, 
is that it would be easy to select all of the passages that are the easy passages to preach. But the problem is we can't do that. It would be like you taking your car to a mechanic and he dealing with some of the things that maybe he likes to do but neglect something that would be very important to do that may require more time and more effort. And such is the passage that we're looking at today. To be honest, very rarely probably have we heard uh, this particular passage preached. But I want to look at it, and I pray that as you look at it, you would understand first the purpose of God in this, and that you would be able to adjust your life, your view, to what the light of God has to say. I want to divide our look at this text this morning to really two parts. And first, we see the doctrinal declaration. In other words, there is a baseline, a core teaching that God is expressing here in this passage. Notice how he begins in verse 2. You can understand Paul realizes he's getting to the weighty part of the lesson beginning in verse 3. So he begins uh, in a commendation. He says, I praise you. He gives them a commendation because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them unto you. And so he's commending the church here. Obviously, you want he, he would desire that they understand what he's saying and comply with what he is preparing to say. And he's saying, really, to this point, you are teachable. And, and he speaks about traditions. You know, many times we look at traditions in a negative light, and they can become negative if they become ends in themselves. People can do things just because they've always done them. But in this case, traditions doesn't have that connotation. It's a very positive thing. It literally means that which has been handed down. And so he says, uh, I, I praise you and, and that you've held to the traditions that which is handed down. Now at the book end, on the back end of this text, the last verse that we read, verse 16, he says, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. So he begins with the commendation to what they've done to that point. In the middle, the body of it, he begins to address the, the issue at hand there. But then he closes by saying, and by the way, this is what we do. We have no other custom. Who is the we there? What's the antecedent for, for we? The apostles. The apostolic teaching, those like Paul who were commissioned upon which the church early uh, was built. He said, this is what we hold to. And he says, to, we have no other custom. I don't want you to argue about this. What is the this? What's the antecedent? What, what is that referring back to? It refers to the issue that he is discussing here, which is that of head coverings, of the wearing or not wearing of garb uh, on the head. And so for us, we would look at it in our culture today, a Western culture where for the most part, head coverings are not practiced, and we would say, well, what's the intent of all of this? Well, how does this apply to me in 2022? Well, we first need to understand what he was saying in that context, in the culture of that context, what it meant, the, the problems that this issue was calling, and then we need to understand what it intended, what Paul intended in that, and then apply it 
to ourselves. And, and as we look at this series of messages, it's life in community. Because what was happening here, some people were wearing uh, head dressings they were not to, and others were not wearing it when they should, and it was causing a problem in the body, and it was not glorifying God. And so as we look at uh, this entire subject, we need to understand that we as individuals in the body of Christ don't live unto ourselves. It's not that we do what we want to do. I have my rights, but we live in community and we live for God's glory. But before we look at the issue itself, I think we need to understand the doctrinal reason that Paul speaks about men not wearing head covering and women wearing head covering. And I want to make a few brief distinctions, three distinctions before we deal specifically with the issue, but this is important because this is foundational in that culture to why Paul was writing what he was writing. And the first is this, God makes a distinction between male and female. We are living, older people, I'm older, we are living in a day when our young people are confused. There's confusion. And we should not be casting stones at them, but what is happening, they're living in a culture that is facilitating darkness. They're facilitating darkness. And in addressing this issue, he makes a clear distinction. Men are this category. Women are this category. And he goes all of the way back to creation. It's not just some cultural thing here. He goes all the way back to creation and the fact that God created male and female. Listen to me. A male is a male. A female is a female. And if you're my age, we get it. But I'm telling you, it, we're facing a storm of cloudiness in our world today. I stand amazed at how fast our culture is turning from this foundational truth of the Bible. And I find it curious that a generation who can't solve basic issues has the gall to pontificate that gender distinction is obsolete. I can't understand it. Have we suddenly become smarter than everyone who has lived before us? Are we smarter than the founding fathers? No, we're not. Throughout the Bible, God makes a distinction between male and female. There is no gender fluidity. There's nowhere in Scripture do you see that. There's no gender fluidity. Male and female are distinct, distinct anatomically, distinct in purpose and role. Now, unless we jump on the soapbox and begin to attack individuals, that's not my intent. My intent is to address a falsehood with the truth. We're to love all people, and we can love people into the kingdom. And many people, especially our young people, they're confused today. They're not to be the object of our wrath. They're to be the object of our love through Christ Jesus. But we as a church must make our stand on the fact that God has created male to be male and female to be female. But we see a second thing. Man is given authority over a woman. Boy, you say, boy, that's a bright light now. This authority is not 
carte blanche. It doesn't mean that a man can leave this place and arbitrarily pick out a woman in Farmville and say, you're submissive to me. You do that, guys, you'll probably have a black eye. All right? That's not what he's saying here. He's writing in the context of the church. It's not that any man says to any woman, I'm your authority, do what I say. No, it's not. This authority is understood that it exists in God-ordained institutions, in the home. The Bible says the husband is to be the head of the wife. In the church, it's clear that, that the leadership and the expectation, the role of responsibility is to be the men. It doesn't mean that women don't have positions of influence in the church, but in the position of senior pastor and elders and positions like that, the responsibility is the main. But let's briefly consider this order. This order, again, within God-ordained institutions. The order was established at creation. Look at verse 8. For a man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Now, we know back going to the creation account that man was created first. There was um, no one, uh, no other part of creation that could uh, have that created fellowship. And so God put Adam to sleep, took from his rib, formed a woman. So it says in verse 8 that for man didn't come from woman, woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman was created to what? Meet the need of the man because the man was alone. And it goes on to say, now this is why a woman should have, in that context he's saying, a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So what does he do? He goes all the way back to creation and who was present at creation, the angelic order. He's speaking of the godly angelic order who themselves are submissive and understand their role in creation. And so he's saying the man is given headship over the woman. We see also it's consistent with order in the Trinity. Just as there is order in the Trinity, so there is to be order in the earthly institutions God has ordained. Look at verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So as we look at it, our Lord and Savior, who we honor and glorify, it says God the Father had authority over the Son, especially the, during the time when he was on this earth and he submitted to the Father's will who himself was head over the man and man over the head of woman. It's just like in the workplace. Things work better when order is understood and roles are carried out. And so it's consistent with the order in the Trinity. And so he's not degrading women here any more than he would degrade Christ for being under the authority of God the Father. Then he adds in verse 7, man is not to have a symbol of submission over him. The man should not cover his head. Now that's good because I'm balding. But uh, but what it, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But what I'm saying there is the man was to not wear something over his head in the assembly because he's the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So God created man, woman was created from man. And so man is not to have a symbol of earthly authority over him. But then we move fourthly, the authority is not for man's benefit at all. It's not that he goes around and rules the roost. It's not that he uh, tries to throw his weight in. It's not about him at all, 
but it's for the benefit of all. It's for the benefit of all. And that leads us to a third truth. This distinction is in function, not worth. Look at what it says in verse uh, 11 and, um, or yeah, 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, through man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. And so he goes back again to the creation of woman, that she was created through man, but yet, or from man, yet man comes through woman. Yet if we follow it all the way back, still man is the origin of that which was created. But what he brings out in verses 11 and 12 is this, we're interdependent. We're interdependent. That's why we have the body of Christ. We need each other. There's some things that I don't do very well. There are a lot of things. But praise God, there are other individuals in the church who are able to carry out those ministries, and you do so. And so he speaks to the fact that even though there's an authority that man has over woman in the God-ordained institutions, this is for the intent of the well-being of the whole body. And in fact, men and women are interdependent. Lest a man thinks he's something, not one of us men would be here had it not been for our mothers carrying us for nine months. And so he adds in verse 12 a key component. He says, for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. And so as we're looking at um, life in community here, whatever we're do doing should be for the glory of God. For the glory of God. How is God glorified when people are saved, when people come to know Jesus Christ? How is God glorified when the church is working in unity and is working uh, in, for a unified purpose? The diversified gifts working together, we'll see. God is glorified. God is glorified when we're building each other up. When you come on Sundays, is your intent, God, what am I going to get from this? Or is it, God, may I be a blessing to someone else? And so we see here this interdependence, different but equal, the same worth but different function. Galatians 3.28 shatters the distinction between men and women. It says that there's neither Greek nor Jew, nor male nor female, nor slave nor master. But that speaks directly and specifically to acceptance before God. Not to roll, but to worth and value. It doesn't make the man greater that he's placed as in a place of headship in God-ordained institutions. It doesn't have anything to do with his worth or value. I talked with uh, Larry Morris, our, our chairman of deacons, before the service. Many of y'all may not know he was a good athlete in his day. I guess the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree because Libby's done well, and Roma will say she gets some credit for that too. But um, years ago, not too many years ago, but Larry was quarterback for Buckingham Knights for their high school football team. They had a guy named Billy Johnson. Now, I was, I'm not from Buckingham, but one, I was not here about a week before I heard people say, Billy Johnson, he went to University of North Carolina. He could run fast, and he was big and strong. And a lot of people will say was the best football player to come through Buckingham. But when the team lined up, 
Did Billy Johnson call the plays? No, Larry Morris called the play. Why was that? Because he was the quarterback. Now, Larry was and is a good athlete. I'm not saying that. But Billy Johnson was considered a once-in-a-generational type of talent, yet he wasn't given the position of calling the play. Someone else was given that position. So it had nothing to do with value. It had to do with function. And so as we look at headship in the home and headship in the church, the home and the church run best when men are leading as men should lead. It has to do not with worth, but function. So looking back to creation, God ordered it intentionally. Knowing that God is a God of order, not disorder, that he doesn't do anything mindlessly. Understanding that God prescribes such order in God-ordained institutions and realizing that it has to do with function, not with worth. Now let's look at the issue in Corinth. And we see the practical application. This week, Paul's dealing with another issue. Last week, we looked at the subject of food offered to idols. What's the intent of Paul addressing that? Well, some people were saying, I can eat anything. All foods are clean in Christ, and that was true. But we saw how some people, they were hesitant to do that. And so if the first person were to apply his or her freedom in such a way that would hinder another person, he says it may be uh, possible for you to do it, but it wouldn't be beneficial. He said not to do it for the sake of the other person's conscience. conscience. In other words, what he's saying is in life, in the church, and in the family, we don't just make a decision and, and not factor in others. That's not Christ. That's not what he would do. And so now he moves to how people were dressing in the public uh, assembly. And specifically, it had to do with headdressing. And notice what he says, uh, verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. In other words, it's not honorable for him to enter the assembly. But notice the contrast. Again, the distinction. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So for the men to wear would be dishonorable. For the women not to wear would be dishonorable. And so we see that contrast. But why the distinction? Paul makes it clear in, in, in this passage. Man created in the image of God was not to have a symbol of authority over him. Whereas woman who was created after and is a helpmate for man was to have that symbol. He's basically teaching here specifically to the women that their outward practice of neglecting the head covering was a hindrance in the body. It was sending the wrong message. It was sending the wrong message. And why? Because of how she, her comportment in the public assembly. So how does this apply today? I think we see a timeless truth in a contemporary application. In our culture, in general, we do not practice head coverings for women. However, in Middle Eastern nations and in some denominations, even in the United States, such head dressing is still prevalent. Especially in Mideastern cultures, for a woman to reject such a covering would be considered a significant breach 
and a real threat to her own well-being. But here in Corinth, the head covering accomplished two things. Leon Morris in his commentary on 1 Corinthians brings out each of these. First, as we've already looked at, the head covering is a symbol of the authority over that individual. And so that particular attire would symbolically represent uh, that person's under authority, similar to my wedding ring would represent I'm spoken for, I'm married to someone. But also, Leon Morris adds to our study, he said it also demands respect. So it's not something inappropriate, it actually is something very respectful. And I've learned that when I have traveled through Middle Eastern nations and in parts of the world, in Africa, where uh, this particular uh, process was normative. And they said, if you see a woman who is veiled, don't go up like Gomer Powell and say, hey, how are you, and shake your hand, because that would be an offense. In fact, she would back off, because it would be inappropriate for a gentleman to approach someone who was so veiled. And so there was an honor, and is an honor in many cultures, for women who are veiled. So we see it's a symbol of submission to authority, but it's not something to be looked down upon. In fact, in many places where it's practiced, women are esteemed for doing so. I like how Paul uses hyperbole in our context here. He said, for if a woman doesn't cover her head, cover her head go on and shave her head off, hair off. Shave all of her hair off. In, in other words, uh, you know, we have People have to have their heads shaven today for various reasons, illnesses and things like that. But in that culture, to shave one's head off meant that that individual was promiscuous. So he says, if you're going to rebel in the assembly, it's the same as just rebelling in general. And then in verse 15 or 13 through 15, he refers to nature itself. Verse 14, he speaks about normative in regard to nature. Nature itself teaches that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, all right? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Now, we realize, especially in the 60s and other ages today, those things have changed in a lot of ways. But as we look at it, in the normal progression of things, women's hair uh, is on the head and men's hair comes off. So what he's saying is even to nature, he says, look at nature, it's normative for a woman to have hair. And so why go and reject against what nature, what would be normal, why go and reject what is accepted and taught by the apostles? Why reject what is being practiced in the church? And so as we look at it, we say, where does all of this lead? At Concord Baptist Church, a Western nation where a woman, if she were to wear a head covering in our church, we would all probably be rubbernecking and looking because it would be strange in the year 2022. So how does it apply to us? Two things real quick. First is the timeless truth. God, in his God-ordained institution, is a God of order. The light of God's word restores and affirms that order, specifically in the home and in the church. God in his sovereignty has placed man in the position of headship in the home. 
and in the context here in the church. To reject it is to reject God. Well, some would say, well, that's just a cultural thing. That's just what they did in the culture. We've arrived. We're, we're 2022. We're equal rights and all of that. Hey, right, equal in value, but not in role and responsibility. Well, it's not just cultural. Because where does Paul take us all the way back to creation? Where does he speak about the angels? And last I checked, and my buddy John Parker brought this to my attention, the angels aren't concerned about a culture, one culture over another. They've been around a lot of years. And so there's a timeless truth. Men, that means you're given the responsibility to lead in your home. Don't defer that. If you defer that, it's not an issue with you and your wife. It's an issue with God. In the church, men, you're to lead. In many churches, you know why women lead? Because men, by default, just give up the leadership. That's not the way it's to be. Now, again, that doesn't mean that women don't serve in the church. They don't have positions of, of influence in the church. But men are given the responsibility, a timeless truth. But then secondly, a contemporary application. We don't practice head coverings here at our church. There are some, some in our culture, some denominations that do, and that's good. But it is a symbol. A person doesn't get saved by wearing a head covering. A person gets saved by believing the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not discrediting those that wear head coverings because if that's their practice and normative and conviction, that needs to happen. But what he was speaking contextually here was the fact that how the women and the men were portraying themselves outwardly was inconsistent with how they were to live in the community of the church. That which was normative, which was established in the early church, was being rejected on the notion of individualism and self-reliance. And that's not why the church exists. The church does not exist to meet your needs and my needs. The church exists to glorify God and to edify others. So life in community, whether it be how we uh, dress or what we eat, as we saw last week, what is best for those around us and how is God glorified? I might be free to eat anything. But I would refrain from doing that if it didn't help my brother or my sister. I may be able to wear things that, that, that I can just establish my freedom, but not in the context if it doesn't bring glory to Christ or edify others. I come back to this morning's opening illustration. Darkness just doesn't help. We don't need more dark. We need more light. We need the Bible. We have Bible school this week. We need to bring the kids in. They need to hear the truth of God's word. The light, while initially may shock us, once we acclimate to the light, then we're able to see more clearly. But as I thought about this, I want to close by looking at verse 3. Unless you say, preacher, this isn't right. I shouldn't be in a position of submission in the home or in the church or saying, yeah, I'm in position of headship and this. Both those attitudes are wrong. Who's our example? Jesus. Verse 3 is an interesting verse because it portrays Jesus both in the position of authority 
and in the position of submission. Look at what it says. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And thus, since he's the head of every man, he would be the head of the woman too. But it says at the end, God is the head of Christ. What people need to see today is Jesus Christ living out, not us. They need to see Christ. And when we look at Christ, we see his authority over man and how he handled it and his submission to the will of the Father and how he handled it. And if we'll just be like Jesus, we'll be okay. If we're in a position of authority, let's look to Jesus. What did he have? He had the position of authority over the church. What did he do? Church serve me. Church do this. Go get my slippers. No, he didn't. He went to the cross and he died. In fact, he didn't say, go get my slippers. He actually got down on his knees, and those he was head over, he served and washed their feet. That's the headship that Christ experienced, that Christ has experienced. But what about submission? Oh, Jesus is fully God. Don't get that wrong. We may not understand it, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus. We may not understand it, and that's okay. We believe it. We believe it because God's a unique being. Yet Jesus, fully God, the night before he died, prayed to the Father. Would that it not be, nonetheless, your will be done, not mine. So anybody who says submission is shameful and a four-letter word, they don't know Jesus. They don't understand it. They have no idea what God's word is teaching here and I'm thankful that Jesus submitted why because as he submitted God the Father was glorified and we were blessed the body and so life in community we don't just do what we want we don't assert our freedoms we say God I thank you that I'm free in Christ but I live with an awareness of what will build others up and what will exalt our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this uh, complex part of your word, we thank you, Lord, for the clarity in it. And Lord, our example is Jesus Christ. There are people today who would say, don't submit to anything. You don't owe anyone anything. But Jesus submitted. There'll be those who would say, oh, try to get the power and rule and, and tell people what to do and have people serve you. But Jesus, when he was in the position of authority, served others. Lord, if we'll just know Jesus and, and get him and allow him to live through us, Lord, all of this will make sense. Father, it doesn't make sense in man. It makes sense through Jesus. Father, I pray that we would live life in community the way you would have it and that this church would be a church that would live in its community, meeting the needs of others and glorifying Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name.